0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Cumming, Georgia, it's time for Simon Says Let's Talk Business 2.0. Now, here's your host, Gary Zermelin.
1: And good afternoon or morning or wherever it may be when you're listening to this uh, podcast. But this is Simon Says, Let's Talk Business 2.0 radio show. And on this show, we talk with high performing business professionals to sharpen our skills, learn new ideas and concepts and share best practices and get to know really smart people. So listen carefully, Uh, take notes and look for their contact information at the very end so that you can engage with them. And as always, we will conclude with a sales tip from me, at the very end, and I am really delighted about our, our guests that we're going to be having today. We're going to learn some incredible things, I promise you. Uh, so you, if you're a listener, you want to listen to the very end here today. Uh, we'll be uh, you know talking a little bit with uh, about knowledge. We're going to talk about which, which is power and experience and all those things, and we're going to be able to get some of that uh, from Stan that's going to be with us uh, because he's been working with businesses as a CFO, uh, which allows... Uh, you know, it's been doing this doing this i would say gosh for how many years have you been doing this 15 over 15 years so he's worked with i think you were mentioning the other day over 50 different uh, businesses over the years. So that's going to allow him to come in with a really wide angle lens on, on running a business. And so he's going to be able to share that with us. That's going to be really cool. I know we're going to get some great insights from all of that. Uh, then after that, we'll have Matthew Durden. He's going to be with us with LexTechs. And uh, this th- he's been, been in there as a general manager for automotive repair for a lot of years. And so he's going to be able to probably answer some questions for us about cars and maybe give us some great tips and advice, which is going to be awesome. And they're also uh, starting off in a new journey uh, in, in auto repair. Uh, I'm not going to want to give it away. I want you to hang in there and see what it is. But I tell you, it will be electrifying. Um, hopefully that didn't give it away. Uh, but that's going to be a lot of fun with him as well. Uh, but we're going to start off uh, with Stan. Uh, all the half that he's going to be here. And it gives, his company is called Business CFO for Hire. And uh, you know, their primary objective is your success Uh, Your success is their success. Uh, They recognize that uh, every business is unique, and as such, they mold their approach to align to your objective, desires, and priorities with a seamless integration. Uh, They become part of your executive team. Uh, They uh, are a trusted advisor and long-term CFO partners. That gives you a little bit of background, but Stan, before we go too far in all this, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what got you into this role.
2: Uh, the CFO role. Yeah. So, kind of backtrack many, many years ago. Um, back in my home country, South Africa, it was compulsory to do the military. So I didn't know what I wanted out of life. I went to the military, and the day I went to the military, my mother said, "You're going to come out, and you're going to become an accountant." Huh. So that was my. There you go. You know, that was my introduction to accounting. Into the CFO world, I've been a CFO basically for the latter part of my life, a good um, 30-plus years. I got into the fractional CFO business about 15 years ago. I went through the unfortunate experience of a divorce. I was the primary custodian for my children, and my eldest child is special needs, And I was working for a VC, and I just couldn't work the hours, and I needed the flexibility to look after my children at that stage. My oldest was, I think, like 16, Mm -hmm. and my youngest was four. So that's how I kind of got into the fractional CFO business.
1: Gotcha. So tell us a little bit about that. What does that mean? Does that mean that you can work for
2: multiple businesses at one time, or, or how does that work? So the model I have is I work with multiple com- multiple companies simultaneously. I'm industry agnostic, and I typically do not work for anyone in the same vertical. So if we take, for example, automotive, I'll have one automotive client the repair business there might be another one as an importer, but I won't cross over and have two clients in the same industry. Mm. Now it has happened where the owner has uh, asked me to help a friend of his in the same industry, but that was with the owner's or my client's blessing. But typically otherwise, once the vertical is gone, it's gone.
1: Okay. I'm kind of thinking about this. So when would a business want to consider bringing in A fractional CFO, I mean, what what, what was happening that they're going to say, hey, we we need this type of help? What what have you seen?
2: Well, typically the run of the mill is people only ask for help when they kind of got the back to the wall. Um, The reality is that you need financial strategy, and that's really what a CFO brings is strategy from day one because you start making decisions, you start making implementing processes, and they could be wrong and send you down the wrong path. And then there's always resistance to change because I've been doing it this way the whole time. So I think, you know, Steve Covey, Covey said, you know, start with the end in mind. Mm. So I love quoting that because that's really what I keep telling people. You start early and you can always add to it.
1: You know, what are some common mistakes that you've seen as you've been doing this over the years?
2: Um, I think the biggest mistake I have, number one, is uninformed decisions. People thinking they're making money, um, you know, depending on the industry, right? Some industries are a lot easier to see. Let's just take a company, for example, that sells 10 products. And they'll think they're selling product A at the best, at the best margin. And they don't really know their margins. They're making mm-hmm. uninformed decisions, um, deploying incorrect resources to fulfill a task, Mm. um you know let's just take accounting for example there's a big difference between a bookkeeper a controller a cfo and your accountant and each one has a specific task and a lot of companies will go to the cpa who does their taxes mm. and no disrespect to you know to the guys that do taxes but they're not really well versed in the operational side of things
1: I got you. Yeah, that's that's not really but what they've been trained to do. Correct. And your job is kind of like you said, it's it's seeing things holistically. And you're right, a lot of people get excited about that increase in revenue, and I've seen, hey, we've increased our revenue another 20%, but that may not matter if your profit went down 30%. Well,
2: correct. So, you know, I mean, for example, a very complex industry is manufacturing. It's people shy away from it, people don't know the true cost. Again, let's take 10 products. People don't know their margin per product. They kind like of guesstimate hours, minutes. Um, that's a very common mistake. And the reality is, you know, would you rather sell a lot of items making, say, a penny profit or would you rather sell 20% of the, of, of the same quantity and making 100%? Yeah. You know, so it's all about efficiencies and market share.
1: Yeah. What would be, or what you would say would be your ideal client?
2: My ideal client is someone who knows they want assistance, someone that is willing to listen, someone that's willing to change, and someone that really wants to improve their financial well-being.
1: Sounds like you want someone who's, what we say, intellectually humble. In other words, they're going to have an open mind to what you have to say.
2: Absolutely. You know, a lot of people will think they want a CFO, or someone to help them, but when it comes to change or execution, there's always pushback, and thank goodness, you know, I'm being very blessed that at this stage of my life, I do not take on every client, so I kind of choose the clients I want, and the ones that I think will be open to taking my word, it doesn't mean you have to do whatever I say, but at least listen and make an informed decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter if you give them the best advice there is. If they're not going to take it and apply it, um, it doesn't really matter, though they may still hold you accountable. <laughs> to well, the you know, the so, <laughs> so that's the
2: whole, the whole key, right, is, and that's my motto, right? Your success is my success. If you're not going to execute or listen to ideas, I'm wasting my time, and more importantly, you're wasting your money. Yeah. And for me, it has to be a win-win situation.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure you've got some really good stories over the years. Do you have one that comes to mind that you'd like to share with us?
2: Are you looking for success or failures? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I,
1: we may want two stories then. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's start with a, a failure, then we'll end with All a right. success.
2: So it was, when did the market crash initially, the whole property market? 20 oh, eight. Seven or eight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I met this gentleman at a big bank, luncheon, luncheon learn. And he is a well-known figure within the great Atlanta community, a surgeon. And he decided he was an entrepreneur. At that stage, the the whole market crashed, property market, you know, commerce was down. And he decided he was going to buy an HVAC business (laughs) off a napkin. And um, we kind of met. I went out to see the location. And I begged him not to buy it. And he seen this, he said, well, one of the big box banks had underwritten him. And I tried to explain to him that they underwritten him, not the company. He's the one with the money, not the company. Uh-oh. Long story short, he bought the company at a premium. He paid like 40%, 50% premium on the property. Needless to say, that he lost it six months.
1: Ooh, you know, yeah, cost he him will, millions. Yeah, yeah, he lost. Because it was on him, so it was personally he was responsible to to pay it all back then
2: correct Oof. so that was an example of you know um, you know a little bit of ego and not not really opening to listening
1: yeah, yep, and bank course gave it to him he thought, well they, they wouldn't give me the money unless they didn't think I was going to be successful, so maybe that was uh,
2: well, back in those days, if you remember, the banks were giving out money freely. The banking market mm-hmm. has certainly changed and tightened up, but they certainly underwrit him, not the you know, not the, not the company. I mean, you yeah. know, as I said, it was done off, off a napkin. Yeah, and that's so something to remember. Crazy.
1: Yeah, it could be, if there's underwriting, it it's a difference between you personally versus the company. That, yeah. That's something that you would help with is making sure that we got something here that's sustainable that can, we can pay all of this back.
2: C- correct. And also, I mean, mm-hmm. t- in today's world, I mean, I've just done a round of financing with uh, one of my other clients, just close on a $7 million line, which is substantial for a small company because that's really yeah. the market I, I operate in. And it took the bank close on three months to underwrite the business. The banks t- today are not interested in taking over your business. They want to make sure that you succeed. Which is a very different mindset to what it was back in '8.
1: Yeah so you have to have a really good business plan and
2: you have to have your ducks in a row mm-hmm. you know and you need to really understand and think about what you're doing. you know have, you know are you going to execute? can you pay this loan back? Is it manageable? What is the next step? And that's where strategy is very, very important.
1: Yeah, that's true too is, is I don't think people they only think about what's going to happen if we're successful. They don't always think about, okay, you know, what is the exit strategy if this doesn't work? What is this going to mean uh, for me, the family? Are we going to lose the house?
2: <laughs> well, you know, today banks want everything. I mean, you know, Again, they're not interested in your business. They want to make sure they're whole and they want to make a good return on their money. And believe it or not, in the secondary market, a lot of people aren't even aware of the secondary market, you can get loans today deposited into your bank account almost the same day at 30% interest. Ooh. And one has to be very careful in taking those loans um, because you have to make a good, serious margin to pay back a 30% loan.
1: Yeah, yeah, you've got to have a real serious. <laughs>
2: you yeah, have a lot of
1: profit coming in. A lot of profit. A lot of revenue to be able to, 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 to A lot of cash. One.
2: It's just a lot of cash because a lot of these people, you know, you're dealing in that market, and, you know, they're getting high returns. I'm sure their write offs are higher than normal or so. But you need to pay it back on a daily basis or a weekly basis, so you have to really do a scenario in terms of a cash value projection. How's this going to impact? You know if you take a this easy math, a hundred and twenty thousand dollar loan and you have to pay back interest plus ten thousand dollars every month, you know the first month you're already down ten grand so your hundred twenty becomes one hundred and ten plus your interest
1: It, it grows exponentially quickly
2: un- unbelievably. So you know you have to really look at the cash flow impact and project. You know, project what's going to do for your business.
1: So we want to lead a, lead a, a live, leave, I should say, on a more positive note. So, what's a success story that you you've seen?
2: So, uh, what's a success stories, I got a couple. Uh, the easiest one is one of my clients uh, went through a significant insurance claim, and uh, right out the back, the insurance company came back and offered them a million dollar settlement. I kind of told them to laugh it off. They they knew they weren't going to take it. Um, Then it went on for about a year. We ended up, you know, substantially more. Then the last settlement typically, depending on how the policy is written, and this was a business interruption claim, um, the final payment, the insurance company came back and said, we'll give you like $100,000. $150,000, and the owner called me. He said to me, we've got an offer of $150,000. I'm taking it. I said, no, you're not. He said, why? I said, because there's more money on the table than $150,000. We negotiated with, I negotiated with the insurance company and the help of the owner and the actual insurance brokers. The final check was over a million dollars. In fact, when we went to go sign off at the claim, the funny part is the uh, assessor who the whole project wouldn't even acknowledge me at the table
1: mm.
2: so mm. you know it was to me that was a great great story the client got made whole which that's why they pay the insurance company and insurance companies and they're there for they're there for catastrophes but they're not always your partner in paying for catastrophes
1: yeah i think you know those are some really good points because uh, we were talking about this not that long ago. It was about seeing around corners, and we can't, we can't really see through all, all of them. Usually, as a business owner or an entrepreneur, you find them out the hard way. Boom, there it is. You run into it, and you go, well, that won't happen to me again. But rather than going through that school of hard knocks, you know, having someone like yourself, you know, can say, hey, hey, hey I, you know, make sure you got insurance. You know, I'm sure a lot of companies don't even have something like that.
2: Well, a lot of companies, sorry to check, but a lot of companies, for example, don't have business interruption insurance. Yeah, what, yeah what's that? You know, you so know. that that is the catastrophe. What's going to happen? Um, do you have to let all your employees go? Do you have to, you know, if you come from a technical background, let's just take the automotive industry, mechanics. There's a shortage of mechanics. I know that because I took my and take my car for a service, and you have to wait in line, right? Uh, do you want to let your mechanics go because you can't pay the rent? Oh, you can't pay the rent and you can't pay the salaries if your building burned down. Well, business interruption will pay all the overheads. So you can keep your mechanics on payroll. They might not be producing, but it allows you an opportunity to regroup and get your business back up, back up and operational again to where you were.
1: What I like about those too is that, okay, that's the first step. We've got to make sure we're doing that. But the insurance companies are there to protect the insurance companies. And so that's the problem. And, and it's having someone like yourself to be at the table to make sure that uh, we're not a victim of that, that you get whole. Uh, I think that, that has a lot of value too.
2: Look, there are a lot of good people out there. And, you know, everyone's looking off their own dollar. That's the bottom line. Um, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with big insurance claims, you know, you, and I don't want to mention big insur- names, but if you look at the big, Reputable companies. This isn't really their money. They have syndicates, right? Where the wealthy come together, they put money in a pot and say, "Right, we're going to underwrite this," and they want a return on their money. So, if, if you get a claim for ten million dollars and they can only pay out a million dollars, effectively you put nine million dollars back in the you know in the syndicate in the in the people who put the money together. So, you have to be astute. You have to question. You have to understand how it works, and surround yourself with good people. Yeah,
1: I think that's a great point there. And I mean, if you're listening today and, and you're like, boy, I, I think I could use some of that advice. Um, I could use some of those tips. I could use someone who has this um, you know, wide-angle lens on, on business and making sure I can see around a few of the corners. Uh, uh, I'd be definitely reaching out to Stan. Stan, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you if they want to do that?
2: Well, there's one of two ways. Um, you can go to my website, bcfo.com for FORHIRE.com or give me a call at 678-596-0744.
1: Stan, thank you so much thank for being you. on the show. I know I learned a lot, and I have a feeling if someone to bring you on, they would learn even more on a lot larger scale. So I thank you for being a guest.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: On the show today. So now we're going to have our second guest for today, and, and I'm, I'm also thrilled to have him as well. It's Matthew Durden. He's with Lex Tex, And I'll uh, give you a little bit about them. Lex Tex of Atlanta uh, and Johns Creek. So they have two locations. Uh, they are an independent automotive full-service repair shop with multiple specialties that include Lexus, Toyota, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes too, as well as is, is, is Tesla. So um, they're also with, involved in overlanding. Uh, specialties for Toyota and Lexus trucks and SUV. So we're, that was something I didn't even know what that was. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later too. What is overlanding and, and all of that. So we got a lot of great stuff and we're going to have some more tips on cars and stuff like that. So this is going to be jam-packed with great stuff. So make sure you listen to the very end. But before we do that, Matthew, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you even get into the automotive repair world?
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I guess I have to ask the question, how far back do you want to go? But if you want to go all the way back, I mean, as as a young child, I was always interested, as lots of kids are, in mechanical things. Mm. And um, I didn't come from a long line of technicians or anything. Nobody in my family was in that business. But but I just had a natural inclination. I was the as a toddler, my mother told me that I would go around and you know, I'd get my dad's tools and I'd go around and like loosen all the door handles in the you know in the, the doors of the house, and they'd go and <laughs> open a door, and <clears throat> you know the handle would just come off in their hands and that kind of thing. So it, it started pretty early. Oh, that's uh, but but eventually that. That uh, transitioned into cars, you know, naturally, the interest in cars. So you went and, from
1: loosening to tightening. Well, actually, <laughs>
0: in order for success to occur, you have to be able to do both of those things. Well, that's true. <laughs> but how it, how it kind of progressed to the point it's at now was that interest in cars as a teenager in high school. And, of course, back then, you know, if you had a car you'd modified. We'd call it a hot rod. You know, they, there's probably some other terms for it now. But essentially, you know, I had a car that was pretty highly modified, And uh, really just the interest of touching the car itself and, and, you know, working on it uh, as a kid got me in the business. Because what happened was I ended up, you know, with a part-time job in high school at some tire shop. And then next thing you know, you've surrounded yourself with that business. And that's what you become familiar with and uh, and accustomed to. So, um, yeah, I I ended up, I think, my first automotive full-time job for me was a tire changer, you know, just kind of like a lube tech tire changer back in the nineties. And not long after that, I became a technician. And so the majority of my career has been spent as a technician. So,
1: but now you're a general manager, so you're kind of wearing a different hat. Uh, How is that different? Good or bad?
0: (laughs) Well, as lots of folks discover, when they're over thirty and they decide to do something, they you know that is essentially different. It requires a new a new skill set. So fortunately, I possessed some of those things, and over time learned how to use them. Some of those skills that are required for the job now. But yes, I did make that mistake early on, thinking, well, you know, I, I know this business pretty well. Well, I knew part of the business pretty well. <laughs>
1: We're always learning and growing. Exactly. You That's know,
0: and you have is. to have the mentality. That's absolutely
1: right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about LexTex. I mean, what makes them different and uh, what's what do you think is their secret sauce? Because they've been around a while and been pretty successful.
0: Yeah, that that is, you know, time really flies. When when I went to work for LexTex, I was their second employee. and That was almost 11 years ago. And now, of course, we've grown to two locations, one in Decatur as well. And then, of course, our location in Johns Creek. And I'm wanting to say company-wide, you know, we've got something like 12 technicians and, you know, three or four service advisors, and just, you know, the counterparts to each each location. Big operation. Yeah, it really has turned into a big operation, and we've grown. Yeah. But to answer your question, so what, what makes LexTech different? Yeah. So I will say this. It's not one thing. It is a combination of many things. Yeah. And and I, it's really easy to go and talk about, you know, features and benefits. You know, we the company has really embraced technology, meaning that one of the things, one of the tools that we use the software that we use makes it very easy for the customer to interact to, you know, very clear communication. We have digital inspections, um, you know, payment platforms and things like that. One box that is solidly checked and has been for some time is our technical expertise. Mm-hmm. That is something we're very confident in. I could use your entire radio show talking about it, but I won't. But I mean, we, we routinely see vehicles that have come from other shops and dealers that they can't figure out. And we figure those cars out. We do inspections on vehicles that people are like, hey, I just had this thing at the Toyota dealer and they didn't tell me about any of this stuff. But really none of that stuff means anything without a good crew to implement it and to take care of our customers. And that is what makes us different. We have an amazing group. We have an amazing crew at our shops. You know, the front of the house and the back of the house really work well together. And we all know what it's like to go into a business. Any business, mm-hmm. you can tell
1: time. usually within the first couple of minutes. That's
0: right. Yep. When you're you're a pu- you're standing there across from whoever is helping you, you get a vibe quickly, and all customers do. You you know if you're being handled correctly, and of course, time will tell. But our people are the reason for our success. Our people are the reason that our customers come back to see us.
1: Yeah, they they love what they do. They care about what they do. Uh, that that's important. They're good at it. They're very good at it. It's like you said, it's that combination. If you miss any one of those, um, you're not going to have it. Um, So overlanding. Uh, So that was one of the things that was mentioned before. A lot of people out there, our listeners may not know what that is. So obviously you fix cars and you get them going, but there's some other things that you do as well. So tell us about overlanding. What is that and how does that fit into what you do? So I
0: like to say we have multiple specialties and that is one of them. And overlanding for us is relatively new. We've been doing it about five years now, so pre-pandemic pre is when we got into that. Overlanding can be characterized in a lot of ways, but what I would say about it is it is a form of utilizing your vehicle to go out to a remote area and self-sustain. In other words, you're going to use that vehicle to camp in. You're gonna It's going to carry all your fuel, your water, your food, any kind of equipment or tools you may need. There's all kinds of gadgets you can outfit your vehicle with, mm-hmm. namely, you know, mostly SUVs and trucks, that that kind of thing. But but overlanding, what makes it different than just going out and playing in the mud? Overlanding, the primary focus is on the journey, mm-hmm. right? So rather than the destination. And so that, that's kind of how I would encapsulate, you know, overlanding. But, but what we do... Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you fit into how, that? The, the, how we fit into the overlanding ecosystem is that we modify the vehicles to do these things. And there is a really wide range of, of things that you can do to these vehicles. But namely, some of the the kind of core, you know, basic things that people do is they, they put on lift kits to get more ground clearance for the vehicle. Okay. Bigger tires and wheels will put specialized type things like roof racks, special roof racks that that are often modular to, you know, that can accommodate certain things, water tanks, tools, jacks, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, one thing that's very popular is we put on of course, skid plates, rock sliders, and this is to protect the vehicle. And sometimes it's referred to as armor, you know, because, you know, you go out there and, and you are off. I don't know. I
1: think you need that on 400, you know, between you and me. <laughs> sometimes I feel
0: like I need that in Atlanta traffic anywhere in the city for yeah. sure. Um, another example of that would be bumpers, it's these steel bumpers. And that sounds like kind of a, you know, kind of a, a regular thing. Oh, well, what's a big deal about a bumper? Well, these are very special. So hmm. folks, you know, like to put accessories, a very popular one is like a winch on the front of the vehicle. You would need a, a special bumper to hold that winch in the back people would attach you know you could put like a a swing out for your spare because you don't want your spare underneath the vehicle when you're out off-roading because if something happens you're not probably not going to be able to get to it so the back bumper is a great place for the spare or extra water tanks fuel tanks that kind of thing but the list goes on there is honestly a surprisingly long list of things and it really it's not like the same kind of thing for all people people have different needs so really what i what i would say about what we do we accommodate people's exact needs. You know, some people just want to run down fire roads on the weekend and maybe camp out, you know, or picnic or whatever. So they, they don't really have to go into those hard to reach places. And some people want to go, you know, out west.
1: So it, what are they paying? Is it a couple hundred bucks for these things? Uh, give me a feeling. <laughs> what's the average amount that people invest in their cars?
0: Yeah, this is where your eyes will pop out of your head. Uh, really, the, it's, 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 a, it's a very expensive thing. And, you know, and I've come, I have to say this in the context of how, where I came from, which is just normal car repair where, you know, know, I'm used to break jobs and, Mm -hmm. and maintenance and things. We, we've had customers spend maybe between maybe two or 3,000 and upwards of $50,000 to modify their vehicles. Wow. And it's not uncommon at all for the, for the latter amount. Uh, In fact, we've had some customers recently buy brand new vehicles, uh, you know, brand new uh, pickup or SUV. I mean, brand new, like. One guy wanted to have it delivered from the dealer to us. And we're like, no, no, you, you need to <laughs> – we would encourage you to pick up your own car and, and drive it, please, to us. But, And then they spent fifty grand on it. So they, they spent – So they're 50 taking
1: 50 off a lot of brand-new stuff to put on your equipment, right? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious, how did you get into that segment of business? I mean, did it fall into your lap? Someone came up to you and said, hey, could you – put these things on my truck, or did you see this opportunity?
0: No, not at all. The owner saw this opportunity and, and met it head on. It was, it, was, okay. it, was a plan, it was very well thought out and planned out.
1: Now, it seems like you guys do a lot of this type of thinking uh, because it seems like you, your owners, and yourself included, have seen another opportunity, and you're going to do the same thing. But this, is, this could be huge. Tell us about that.
0: That's right. We have seen an opportunity to begin servicing Teslas.
1: Okay, but they don't need servicing, right? There's no moving parts on those things.
0: That is a common misconception. Uh, We hear that all the time. Oh, well, why would an electric vehicle need maintenance? Well, the problem with that, my, my assessment of why people have this misnomer is because they associate maintenance with an oil change on a conventional gasoline car. And yes, gasoline cars need oil changes, but there are so much more that cars need besides oil changes. So in a In a person's mind, they think, oh, no oil change, no maintenance. Well, that just couldn't be further from the truth. If you take a car and you take the engine and transmission out of it, you still have everything else. You have steering and suspension systems. You have tires, brakes, you know, bearings, uh, window regulators. I mean, I could just go on and on. I mean, there's the whole rest of the car. You have the air conditioning system. I mean, (laughs) there's just loads of things all the electronics and everything else in the car so absolutely they need maintenance
1: and and they're not perfect either i think you were telling me before this surprised me that that some teslas have over 700 horsepower uh which is i mean that's up there with a sports car that you might see in any 500 i mean that's way up there and then some of it was designed not to be able to necessarily really handle that type of torque and there was something going on there tell us about that
0: well, that's, that's something that a lot of people, that's, that's what's uh, really shaken people and, and disrupted what we know as, you know, transportation and, and horsepower and all that. I mean, electric motors can produce instant torque. And we'll take the Model 3, for instance. If you get a Model 3 performance, which is kind of Tesla. Tesla basically has two levels, two tiers. The upper tier is the Model X and the Model S. Those are considered the higher-end luxury vehicles. They're bigger, they're more expensive, they're more powerful. The Lower-end ones are the Y, which is kind of their smallest EV, and then the three, which is the small sedan. The Model Three performance it has supercar acceleration. It is like zero to sixty in, in three seconds, three and a half seconds. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing, because that's that's just it's just a regular car, really. You know, there, but it, but it just has it's really just a utilization of technology that hasn't been done
1: before. So that causes certain parts to break, maybe.
0: Well, yes, so Tesla is relatively new, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Manufacturers like Toyota and Ford and GM have been making vehicles a long time. They've had a lot of experience to try different things and watch things break and fix them and figure it out. And Tesla is just on the scene like yesterday, really. I mean, they've been around, their their vehicles have been on the the streets for, excuse me, for, you know, about 10 years or so. So, yes, we are learning on the things that these cars can, can handle and they can't handle. And so, yeah, they, most cars develop common problems. But, yes, one of the issues with Tesla is there's just an enormous amount of power in some of these Teslas. They're not all like that, but, but you can option them out that way.
1: So, but I'm confused because I thought some people said, you know, with Tesla, if something breaks down on it or if it needs any of these repairs or brake pads or whatever it is, um, all they got to do is go onto the computer screen on the, on the car, hit a couple buttons and the people come right out to them. I I don't know, right, right from thin air and they come down there and fix it. Um, Is that not happening or what's going on? That was
0: a terrific fantasy that was had 10 years ago. The reality is that Tesla is not prepared does not have the resources or something to be able to take care of their customers after the sale. They have shown through their actions and through customer experiences that they are a sales company. If you Google Tesla, Google will tell you they're an AI company. They're a technology company. They happen to build cars. They do not have the experience and wherewithal in the service side of it. As a result, customers are being left out in the wind. If you want to talk to a human being at a Tesla dealership, you are out of luck. Your best bet is to show up and try to find someone. Well, that just doesn't work for most people. I can tell you what would happen if my customers called me and I told them they'd have to wait two or three months to work on their car. They are would you just, saying it could take that long. Absolutely, all the time. In order to get your car serviced at the Tesla dealer, you have you have an app on your phone. Everything is based around that app. I mean, you could run the car from that app. It, it's it's all you know encompassing. And one of the things, if you want to request service, you get on the app and, of course, you request service. And it might be a couple of weeks, might be a couple of months, depending on your geographic location and how busy the dealer close to you is. I mean, we're in Atlanta, so there are multiple Tesla dealers and a newly opened service center. But guess what? That service center hasn't even been open a few months and the parking lot is already full of broken Teslas with a multi-month wait list. So that was one of the things that became very clear to us and one of the reasons that we saw an opportunity to become a a Tesla uh, service provider. Yeah, but some
1: of this stuff's pretty complicated. I mean, these things have big batteries and I'm sure those don't last forever. I mean, are you even capable of replacing something like that?
0: Absolutely. We've already had our first battery customer. Uh, We have got a source for remanufactured batteries. So ironically, Tesla will not sell anyone the battery. They will not sell anyone the motor, but they've made thousands of these things. And like all other automotive products, when you get enough of the thing out into the market, you know you can there is some type of remanufacturing process available for the aftermarket. So that's what we're offering.
1: So you can actually take a battery and refurbish it? Correct.
0: We can remove the EV battery and, and put a new one in there or a, a refurbished model in there. and and at least you know the car the car will not have the same range it does when it's new, but pretty close. The, the term the Tesla folks have coined, which is a brick. The car is a brick. When the battery does not work, you have a brick. (laughs) So we can unbrick it. And most people are delighted that they don't have a brick anymore and they don't care about the
1: reduced range. I mean, I'm expecting that you're probably going to need a lot of locations here pretty soon. You know, I I don't know how many Teslas are even out there, but I'm I'm guessing there's quite a few.
0: I I do not have numbers on that, but, but one thing to think about is that I think they made more Teslas this year than they've sold in 10 years or something like that. I mean, the, there is a massive demand for them. Mm. They cannot build factories fast enough to produce these vehicles. So looking into the future, it's going to be a huge need. I mean, if you think about it now, the irony of it, that people are lined up on a wait list to buy a car that cannot be serviced currently all the, all the, all the customers they have on the road now, I mean, they're not able to meet those people's service needs.
1: Didn't you like, uh, you were kind of experimenting, weren't you a while back? And you just, for the fun of it, before you were really even doing this, you put it that you could service Teslas on your website. What happened?
0: We spent a few bucks on Google AdWords yeah. and it was a floodgate. We had to shut it off. Oh. All of our referrals since then have come from usually uh, Facebook. Like there's a lot of Facebook forums of Tesla owners and things like that. Or just Tesla forums on the internet. Uh, Tesla folks are a tight-knit group. I mean, they have to be. They have to stick together because Tesla sure is not looking out for them.
1: Well, I think you're going to be part of that group really soon. I think they're going to welcome you with open (laughs) arms here really soon, especially as their cars get older and need more servicing and repair.
0: So far, folks have been really delighted to find us.
1: Yeah. Now, before we go, I I always like getting some car tips. And uh, we were talking a while back. You you gave— I mean, we could go on a whole show on this, but I thought you kind of enlightened me a little bit. I always used to think that you would look at a car by how many miles it had on it, how much life it would be. And you said, Gary, it's probably better to look at it from how many years the car has. Tell us a little bit about that. Why would I want to look at it that way?
0: Well, yes, and that conversation was in the context of speaking to customers about their vehicles when their vehicles are a little bit older and they're in the shop and they need more than, you know, your, your expected amount of repairs. For instance, you have a car that's 10, 12 years old, and the car needs, you know, a pretty big chunk. And so the reason we talk about it in terms of years and not miles is because folks don't realize time is a big factor in, in the aging process of a car. In other words, people look at the odometer, that's what all of the Kelly Blue Book and NADA and everyone else will value a car at, But, I mean, they overlook things like condition, and they overlook things like age, and that's important because cars are made of rubber and plastic and metal, and that rubber and plastic, when it gets to a certain point, is going to start to really deteriorate. So age is very important. You know, you don't want to... uh, So you could
1: have a car with, let's say, 10,000 miles on it, which is nothing, but if it's over 20 years...
0: Yeah, I mean, you really need to give that some thought because Mm. disuse will harm a car. So maybe... Don't get super excited and look at a car with ten thousand miles that's 15 or 20 years old and think oh that car is it's it it hasn't been used up well yeah in a sense it has not but lots of things have happened to that car while it's sitting there you know there's lots of seals that have not had oil on them so those seals are dry rotting there's lots of metal surfaces that have not had oil on them they are rusting you know um things happen i mean especially living in the south it's extremely humid it's hot uh, i've always you know water is the ultimate penetrator it will find its way into everything eventually so very important to uh, take care of things, but you really need to look at the age of a car when considering things like that.
1: Now, people are holding on to their cars longer these days or not?
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, that is kind of a, a trend that is up and down and up and down. One thing we've been very in tune with, and this is really, I mean, I can't point to anything but the pandemic for this. You know, as you, or as you may or may not know, with, with cars, the pandemic created some major supply chain shortages, specifically, these microchips, and I mean, it's something that our industry has been talking about for ages. Before, I mean, it's it's newsworthy now. I mean, they I think the cycle has passed, and they don't talk about it so much anymore. But but there's been a couple of big interruptions in production because of COVID, and it is still having effects. So what has happened is it made it to where cars, new cars, cannot be produced. I mean, I think I read an article you know while back now where Ford had rented some massive parking lot where they parked something like, you know, I mean, tens of thousands of trucks. These were brand new vehicles, okay? They were unable to sell them because they did not have these microchips. They were literally waiting on things like window switches and AC heads to be plugged in before they could sell them. Well, that's industry-wide. So what happened was that drove the prices of used cars through the roof because, number one, you couldn't really buy new cars. Well, the new cars that were available, people were, uh, you know, selling, well, just they called them using air quotes here, market adjustment, they were really, really gouging people, adding loads and loads onto the the bottom line. And so, yes, the combination of that used cars becoming harder to find the used cars that you could find were bottom of the barrel, not really the, the primo stuff that you can find if you wait long enough. And as a result, people were thinking, Oh, man, well, I should probably fix my car since I can't buy a new car. I can't buy a used car. In some cases, used cars were costing more than MSRP of the same new car made the year after.
1: We were talking, you said sometimes, like I had a a repair that was pretty high. It was like $4,500. You know, my car's not, it's not 20 years, but it's probably at the, you know, 10 year, 11 year mark. And a lot of people said I was an idiot for for spending that much money on it, that I should have just bought a new one. Um, What's your thoughts in a situation like that? Would you advise someone?
0: Sure, that's a great question because, what we would do, and this, has, this is a scenario that's very common with us, we get a vehicle in, it's a little bit older, needs some work. Here's a rule of thumb that I present to customers because that's the first thing they think: "Oh, my car is not worth that." Mm-hmm. Well, it is worth it. it. It can be because your car is not just a monetary number. A newer car, yes, we look at these blue book values that has some relevancy. An older vehicle, no, that car is worth the service that it gives you, mm-hmm. right? So let's figure out if that's if it can give you that service. So. I tell folks if you spend say three thousand dollars on your car and you get one year out of it, that is a great value.
1: You're coming out way ahead. You're coming out way ahead. If you get a new one, you, you get all those expenses, taxes. Your insurance rate goes up. That's right. Uh, yep.
0: Yeah, not to mention that ten or twelve thousand dollars a year of car payments or more. I mean, could be much more. So hmm. that that's really a, a figure to look at. But again, keeping in mind, you don't want to put too much money into a really old car. You know, because again, of what we talked about and, and what I would say is when your car gets that, you know, kind of getting close to that 20 year old mark is when that's things when you really got to start, start to crumble. You yeah.
1: Know, yeah, start saving up and get one that's a little bit <laughs> younger. <laughs> um, this has been fantastic. And as I expected, we got some great car tips. Uh, we're going to probably watch your company grow. Uh, tremendously as you go into the uh, electric vehicle market, and um, I I know they're going to welcome you. Now, let's say someone wants to get in touch with you. Say, man, this guy knows what he's doing. I want to make sure him and his technicians are working on my car. How can they get hold of you?
0: Sure. It it depends on what your needs are. If you would like to talk with us, you can call us directly at 678-269-4750. That is the direct line to our Johns Creek store. Also, you can go online at com. And there is a button there where you can request an appointment or make an appointment request at either store. And basically, it's just a little quick field you fill out and like a, you know, typical contact us page. And it'll ask a few questions about your car, get some contact information. And as soon as that comes, those will reach out to you and, you know, try to connect that way.
1: It was great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Both of you. So thank you so much. I, I know I was enlightened by it. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, now, now we're going to do uh, sales tip one, two, three uh, with Gary Z, where we have one of our listeners uh, write in a sales question or a challenge uh, that they're facing, and I give them some tips on how to overcome that challenge. Uh, so this is the one that we have for today, and it says, Dear Gary, um, I have a prospect of mine who really needs our service. Uh, if they don't fix their problem uh, with our service, it could cost them tens of thousands of dollars potentially uh, down the road if they don't fix it. um, How do I help them see the error of their ways that they start fixing it now rather than waiting and having this big fee? Um, Julie, thank you for writing that in. And that's a very, very good question. Uh, It's tempting when we're in those sales situations to say, hey, we can repair this. Let's say it's a roof leak or something like that for $500. um, And, do that today, and then it's fixed. And if you don't do that, if you wait a couple years to fix it, um, then it's probably going to cost you five or $6,000. I know you don't want to do that, so when should we start? Should we start today or tomorrow on this thing? And you're thinking to yourself, this is just this logic. It's this basic common sense. We should just fix this thing right now, and we're just really perplexed and confused when we hand over the agreement and they don't sign it. Um, the reason why they didn't is because when we push them and that's what we're doing, uh, they have a tendency to want to push back. It's just a natural reaction to all of that. And it's also a little bit of fear mongering in there. And they they may sense that you're just saying this to get the sense of urgency out of me. I know what you're doing. I'm not going to fall for that trap. So all of that's going on. So the best way to prevent that, Julie, is really to use a third party story in a situation like that where first of all, you agree with them, you know, yeah, we don't really want to fix the leak. It's not that bad. It's just a couple drips. Uh, We're going to wait till it gets to be more serious. And you go, "Uh, that's fine, certainly. And we we can do that. And we can wait for it to get worse. And when it does, you just give us a call and we'll be happy to come in there and service that roof. No problem. However, do you mind if I just share a quick story with you? And they'll say, sure, there was a company, not unlike yours, similar roof, to yours. It was ABC company and they said the same thing. They said it's not that bad. You know, let's wait to get to a little bit worse. Uh, I'm a little bit tight on money right now anyway and we said sure and we did. And then 2 years later they did give us a call and we went up there and we looked at it and rather than it being a $500 service uh, to fix the roof, it was close to $8,000 because it actually got into uh, the the structure of of the roof itself and so we had to replace that and that was just a nightmare. Um, Knowing that, um, gosh, what do you think we should do here with you? So I'm not telling them what to do. They have options now. They can they can be the gambling guy, and some people are. You know, hey, I'm going to gamble on this, and it's not going to happen. Um, fine. And – will actually make a lot of money at that point because we're going to have a $5,000 deal. Or they may be more of the preventative side, which they're going to say, well, I don't want to do that. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Why don't we just get that fixed right now? So Julie, think about that. Use a third-party story. Don't tell them the error of their ways directly. Tell it to them indirectly. This is Gary Zermielen with your sales tip for today. So I want to thank you all for for tuning in to uh, Simon Says Let's Talk Business 2.0 today. I am your host, Gary Zermiel, until next time, good selling.